So yeah, Brasca olorisea uh, is, I think, the species. And so they have these cultivars, which are basically like the equivalent of like strains for this species, and they wildly vary. So you've got everything from red cabbage, savoy cabbage, broccoli, kale, uh, Brussels sprouts, kohlrabi, uh, cauliflower, and all of these are the same species. So they can all interbreed. And just like dog species, you can have like, um, they're all the same species, all dogs. So they can all successfully interbreed and come up with like different things. So if you wanted, you could just keep messing around with probably Brasca oleracea and come up with some weird foods. And they must have over the time, like Brussels sprouts and broccoli, cauliflower and all those same species, just different like I would love breeds. a Brussels sprouts broccoli because those are like my two favorite vegetables. And you, you could make some sort of super, super food that all children don't want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the uh, the foods are, are, are super good for you. Yeah, so. yeah. Get that, get that iron. But yeah, in response iron to your... weeds. Oh, oh broccoli is iron no. weeds. David uh, is the king of segue- segues. Yeah, I did, <laughs> really it. I did it. I did it. Uh, this is iron weeds. I'm broccoli. <laughs> I'm Brussels sprouts. Savoy cabbage. Ooh, nice one. Deep cut. B-side. I'm pretty pissed off you took broccoli because you know that's my favorite vegetable. Yeah, and, and you got Brussels sprouts, which is my favorite vegetable. So, you know. Yeah. Which, in answer to your question, it grows um, a, a tall stalk and yeah. uh, it grows leaves out. And then in between the layers of leaves, that's where the, the, the sprouts form. And they start like small and they grow bigger. Okay, so that's how Brussels sprouts grow. Yeah, cool. like All on right. a stalk. All right. They don't. They don't just grow in on a tree in a plastic bag that you pull off, and then it's just like a. It is not yet the future. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. But wait. Now it is. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> We're in now. Now. Shout out to Spaceballs, best uh, Mel Brooks movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, how, how have your weeks been? Did you guys uh, enjoy uh, watching the debates? Yeah, the debates were uh, in. Uh, entertaining. I, I enjoyed watching all of the people who are not prepared to lead this dying country. Setting <laughs> <laughs> uh, the tone. Setting yeah. the tone for... I don't know. I it's like, yeah, I watched the debates and th- things happened and some of them were interesting. But for me, like, the, the biggest takeaway is I don't understand how Joe Biden still polls at over 30%. He's just not done well to to me i yeah. don't know but I don't, he, I don't remember him answering a single question that didn't end in him just going oh anyway yeah uh, and he just doesn't come off as like mentally sharp at all and i don't mean to, i don't think that he's unintelligent i just don't know why he seems like you might have to remind him where he is at any given point in the debates that hasn't stopped trump you know yeah yeah but he's at least high energy like joe is literally low energy yeah except when he's threatening to like beat up trump in the back of like a schoolyard gym or something yeah but that was that was years ago now he he does not seem to have the same spark that he used to have and i feel like uh he's not i don't know maybe it's just i'm biased because i hate joe biden and so i want to think he did badly (laughs) in the debates but well you know he is weaponizing the generational avarice of uh america uh you know he's like uh and millennials can go screw (laughs) (laughs) yeah him his uh calling millennials lazy and saying stop complaining do something about it i clearly the the right candidate for our times is someone that says he has no empathy that's right yeah that's what we need 
And Ugh. I don't, I, I, I sincerely can't understand if it is good or bad political calculus to call the entire millennial generation like lazy <laughs> and tell them to stop complaining. Because on the one hand, like the Democrats are constantly trying to get younger voters out so that they get elected. Yeah. And then on the other hand, there is like just this intense apathy for the politics of the upcoming generation that may energize, you know, more moderate voters significantly more than it will suppress millennial vote. Yeah, I mean, potentially the, the politics is just getting so hard to, and depressing to pay attention to because, like, essentially nothing gets done. It just keeps getting worse and worse and it just devolves into, like, white nationalist calls for deportation of sitting, you know, congresspeople and, like, by the president of the United States. And then you end up with, like, all this crazy uh, strife that the people who are invested in politics at all will all be cranks. Like yeah. the normies will be completely purged from the political uh, system. And so you'll only really get like people on, you know, not like there are two extremes, but you'll have like people in extremes like on all the, over the map. People on the fringe, yeah. yeah you like, just let a thousand Krasensteins bloom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that our, our entire media uh, ecosystem is just going to be nothing but people writing uh, raunchy children's coloring books uh, of different... <laughs> Different uh, 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 non-charismatic leaders <sighs> it, being ripped, and like you, wa you kind of want to like fuck them in this weird Freudian uh, <laughs> way, where you you just want to be recognized as a citizen and as a <sighs> human, as a as a living conscious creature, and the only way to do that is to get uh, Nancy Pelosi to like tell you that you have a hot bod or something like and that, that's gonna be our politics that's that that is our politics now and that and it'll just get worse we'll continue to be yeah our we're just going down that road yeah yeah i mean all the like garrison cartoons of trump being like a buff yeah he's like, like handsome shaped, shaped like a triangle like his torso is a triangle with a yeah. narrow waist and broad shoulders and yeah and what was the one where is it said like qt and then trump is at a rally and it just he's like that's a that's a handsome baby and then the baby has a q on it <laughs> and, it's, and it's just like yeah he's just like saying that q anon is handsome and a baby QAnon is a snack yeah q is baby yeah, oh, I, I get it uh but that's a that's the state of the of the capital t capital d the discourse yeah, yeah you guys enjoying it, the spectacle uh no yeah no <laughs> absolutely not uh and i'm loving the the fear-mongering that all of the democratic nominees are too socialist and so donald trump is going to win again oh yeah yeah it's because that's that's exactly what caused uh him to win the first time right was you know the, the woman uh that was running against him was far too socialist yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and uh, so is it the official position of ironweeds that bernie would have won oh yeah like, do we 510 percent okay yeah. 69 for 20 percent yeah hashtag bernie would have won um forever yeah so it's frustrating to see you know these uh upper middle class op-ed writers telling us how we've handed the election to donald trump because everybody because because Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are polling at half of what Joe Biden is polling. And like, yeah, OK, that's that's the problem. Well, you have to understand the real people that handed uh, Trump the presidency were Jill Stein voters. Absolutely. Of course. <laughs> that, that powerful, <laughs> that, that powerful national that, block. That powerful 1% yeah. that had absolutely no statistical relevance in any swing actual state. Um yeah, they're they're the cause. Speaking yeah. of Jill Stein voters, Marianne Williamson has uh, um, won over David Brooks. 
Did what? you see? Yeah, did you see this? Like he has a Colin, like David Brooks, like favorably looking at Marion Williamson, which it scares me, and I, I think that means makes that me she's like bad her less. Now. Yeah, yeah, I think I, she's bad now. I don't now. like her anymore. Wait, and you know, yeah. I, th- I shouldn't, don't think we should blame uh, her for who um, uh, is is charmed by her because in that's David... true for everybody except David Brooks. I think. Yeah, but yeah. in David Brooks and, 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 and Bernie Sanders, because all the Bernie <laughs> yeah. Bros want and and Sanders sisters. I don't know what do we call that. But, Bernie Bros. Yeah, they're just all. They're there are all, no women who like yeah, Bernie Sanders. Right, yeah, right, of course, of course. You've, course. You've Sorry, I forgotten. keep slipping into this uh, weird fringe reality where <laughs> he's uh, like got more uh, individual donors than anyone else in any American election in history. Is and money real good right now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, speaking of the uh, the New York Times, like ran this uh, this really cool interactive map where they mapped on all the different. Uh, donations to all the different candidates and the default they actually have to turn bernie sanders off because otherwise it's just blue for yeah, bernie i saw that yeah that's and pretty... then yeah and because everyone else is all regional yeah. and bernie is the only one that's national and very rural in all the cities rural, yeah. in all the cities it's like Buttigieg and uh kamala harris and uh, uh, in Beto, in Texas, is just Beto because God, fucking Texas is just, they're just the most like brand loyal people in the world, and the only brand that they're loyal to is Texas. So, if, if America was the fascist uh, Blue Lives Matter flag, uh, Bernie voters would be the black and white. Yes, right, yeah. We can cut that. <laughs> 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 just saying that like that flag is almost all black and white and like if that isn't setting off like symbolic like alarm bells for everybody that's like repping it as like yeah. a very non-american kind of thing like there's no black in the american flag and like maybe there should be but like the idea well, is like just that those are like cop colors black yeah. and blue simple like well, that's I, i'm just saying bl- the, black and white yeah. references their nuanced opinion about things you couldn't come up with a more fascist-looking American, like, neo-flag that people would recognize it immediately. Oh, we the that. baddies. <laughs> uh, it, it really <laughs> does look de- demonic to me. Like, and even if you were to try to, like, I, change I it to, it's... like, a green line for, like, environmentalism or some shit like that, <laughs> I'd be like, yep, it still looks fascist. It's, like, a creepy-looking, like, yeah. dystopian version of the American flag, which is already, like, you know... In my opinion, pretty directly tied to uh, you know symbolic imperialism and everything else. But uh, I wanted to touch back on your thing about David Brooks because I think we should cut him some slack because this is probably the first time anyone has looked David Brooks in the eye and shown him compassion and love and acceptance in facial oh. experience. <laughs> experience. That's a good point. That's a you fair point. And, by, yeah, and yeah. like you know, I gotta say, like she's really good at what she does. And like I went back and I've been watching the closing statement on the first. Um, um, debate night, uh, where she was talking about uh, weaponizing love on the on the the, the uh, psychic battlefield, and uh, I'm touched. It, it was, like it, it caused me to well touching. up a little bit. Yeah. Like yeah. she's like definitely selling in. If she is like an actor, she's just faking it. She's great at it. <laughs> she's yeah. great at it. I don't think she's faking it. I think that she drinks her own Kool Aid and that she's like trying to manifest. A being of love and showing that love in the form of compassion, in the form of trying to change, you know, the conversation, potentially even gain power to, you know, put in types of policies. But she's not policy wrong. So she shouldn't talk about policy at all. She should exclusively talk about the psychic warfare that is going on. And she should bring up uh, Jeffrey Epstein at every opportunity possible. (laughs) Because having an extreme moral distaste for the super ruling class is, I think, a species-level imperative. I view 
the billionaire class in America as an existential risk for the human species. What did Buckminster Fuller call they called them uh, the the great pirates of the the spaceship Earth? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's I. Here's my my real take on Marianne Williamson, other than the fact that her closing remarks were arousing. I think that she's useful to have on the stage. I think that if she gains any real popularity, it will be a problem. Like if she becomes the preferred choice of any significant number of people, I will consider that to be not a good sign. Um, But I do like having her in the debates because I think she kind of humanizes the conversation. And I thought her argument for reparations was really moving. And I don't know. I think she's really adorable too. When she got off the stage and I think it was Anderson Cooper asked her how she thought she did. And she said, well, at first I thought that I didn't do well, but then other people told me that I did. And in that moment, I was like, relatable fucking content, man. Relatable content. Oh, and then she also said, we'll have to check the memes. <laughs> Which for me, relatable content. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. how did I do? I don't know. Can you meme it? <laughs> Which is also like, you know, being completely uh, serious for a second, like that, in just a second, like that, that is true. All right, one one thousand. You're, you're done. <laughs> well, I said that. That is true. That, that's <laughs> right. that's that's really serious. Like, yeah. it, how well did you do at the debates? Did you become a meme? It was like then that's... in one way or the other. I mean, yeah. you look at Tim yeah. Ryan. Tim Ryan got dragged. He tried to make uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, you don't have to yell into like a bumper sticker campaign slogan and it was like the, such yeah. the most self-defeating uh thing to try to like hitch his horse onto uh, in terms of the things that he said that night <laughs> i really liked uh andrew yang's comment about everybody being up there wearing makeup and having like re- rehearsed lines to to drop i obviously he rehearsed that line as well but i really enjoyed it yeah that was a really a very big they live moment you like you put on the sunglasses and it's a guy in makeup talking giving a rehearsed line about how it sucks that everyone's in makeup giving rehearsed lines (laughs) (laughs) but but it is but you know like that that's the medium of uh, of that that stage right i think it's important you have to have a rehearsed line that zings at the end Yeah. uh, yeah no and and sometimes you have to give indictment of rehearsed lines by rehearsing a line about it yeah to get it out there i don't remember actually remember the part that i agreed with the most though about that it wasn't it was like the makeup and the rehearsed lines but then there was also there was something else that he said afterwards. i think he was maybe i'm getting this totally wrong but i seem to remember he was making it in the context of him being like more real than the rest of them because he doesn't wear a tie and he's an entrepreneur. Oh, no. It was actually that, like, all of the media is going to be talking about him not wearing a tie. Right. Instead yeah, of a- the actual things that, that fucking matter. Which is, yeah. good, it's a good point. You know, yeah. That's, that's a fair point. Yeah. I mean, when Bernie said, like, watch the ads during the commercial breaks here. You're going to be having the pharmaceutical companies and the health insurers that are profiting off of this broken they, system. They cut that down real fast. Real fast. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like somebody just gave him a look that... And he like recognized that that look means you're going to get taken out when you leave the stage. Yeah. 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 The old Bill Hicks joke. Every president (laughs) is sat down and watches the Zapruder film and all the intelligence agencies are like, that can be you if you don't do what we tell you to. Right. And he just, he just like, he smack himself in the head and he's back into the right. It's disturbing. Back into the right. It's a disturbing bit. To the left. To the left. Oh yeah. 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 It's back into the left. Back into the left. Yeah, but the conspiracy theory is that Bill Hicks never died. He, uh, f- his death was faked either by himself or nefarious entities, and he was turned into Alex Jones. 
What? It's a great one. I, yeah. I highly recommend yeah. this. And it's, it's the only conspiracy theory Alex Jones does not like. Yeah, he does not <laughs> like that one. Think about it, folks. Think um, about it. <laughs> I really like everybody who's on stage right now. And I really like the fact that it reinforces my belief that Bernie Sanders is the only person who should be the the Democratic nominee for president. Like none of these 20 people, I think, will win against Trump. I think that Bernie Sanders is the only one that potentially can. And, but, you know, you got to think about like, well, what did uh, what, what did Donald Trump do th- to leverage the debates in a way that in his favor? And it was always to break the fourth wall and talk about who is in the audience, what kind of questions were being asked. Uh, talk about who donated to who on stage and bernie sanders is the closest one that comes to that and that really does resonate with people is that like this it's just kind of the same thing that andrew yang talks was just saying right it's just like this is all fake you know this is all fake something feels wrong here's the thing that feels wrong i said it on the stage that makes it real and it feels very validating and it's and by saying it then you can like sort of by naming the beast you can then like cast it out i think that point is really really key to understanding exactly why bernie sanders is more electable yeah because how many people okay so we can fear monger about him being too socialist and that not uh that really suppressing the moderate vote but how many people voted for donald trump saying i don't i don't agree with everything that he says but i think that he will shake things up and i think that he he means what he says like people found him to be authentic and relatable Lots of people have got, have said ever since, you know, before the election and after it that, yeah, I didn't I don't I don't agree with everything he says. So why would it be any different for Bernie Sanders trying to get elected? Plenty of people vote for politicians with whom they do not agree on everything because they think that they're the better choice. And I don't think that these mildly, quote unquote, socialist policies are going to be enough to really dissuade a lot of people in the face of Donald Trump. Uh so I guess I guess we have to talk about the fact that there have been three mass shootings in the last week. Yeah. Because it seems kind of impossible to not think about constantly and talk about... Thinking about what's worse, ign- like consciously not talking about it or trying to, trying to find a way to grapple with it. Yeah. It seems I... like I want to grapple with it. Right. And it's it, I think part of the difficulty here is a lot of people don't want to talk directly about like the El Paso Manifesto or um, you know I know there's a lot of really good arguments for not sharing their names we do have to think about like contagion and the fact that that's a very real phenomenon not only just in mass murders but in all kinds of things like suicide or even just kindness like people you know broad sentiments and attention uh, attract similar behavior or yeah risk encouraging similar behavior yeah so, like, but if I you do put think vibes that... out there, you know, you create waves and, and all of that. But I don't think there's any realistic way to grapple with what is, like, a incredibly traumatic social ill. And if you're not going to talk about what these people believe before they engage in these acts very directly and openly, then it's not it's not clear to me how we'll ever meaningfully address it. So, yeah. And there's I, there's also an element to it about, like, where these uh, manifestos show up and what they uh, say and their reactions to them in the immediate places where they're, where they exist. You know, here I'm specifically talking about like eight Chan. There's a really interesting piece by Robert Evans on his, on his personal blog, where he uh, talks about the gamification of mass shooting and their uh, manifestos. And he 
uh, is like actually looking at like the reactions on 8chan where they, you know, they're like saying that like the, the, the manifesto kind of sucks as a document. Like they didn't really enjoy the manifesto and they're goading uh, people into like getting a better quote unquote hit count, like really disgusting stuff, obviously, but they like the venue for where you announce your manifesto and your intentions seems to be like getting these informal rules around it and the idea with the idea that you should try to max out your high score. Yeah. It's really, really quite, quite horrible. I mean, the end of the uh, El Paso shooters manifesto is reads as like advice to, you know, he talks about don't worry, you know, it's, it's, it's good to go after low value targets because you're more likely to, you know, you're less likely to encounter, you know, police and security forces that might be able to, so to stop you it's really it's it's sick it's and he also has like a gear section which the word gear you know goes for everything from you know what sort of gun you're going to use to like what What you're you're wearing what you're wearing but also you know like that's gear is used for you know what sort of computer you use and your your gaming rig and so like a gear is no one's really like talked about gear and the proliferation of things being called gear in in a long time, I think that's that, there's something. There was a show on TV called John Glazer Loves Gear, and it was about this guy who I guess just really loves like the physical uh, mechanisms and stuff that enable various hobbies. And so you have like these, you know, like you could call them communities or yeah. culture, <laughs> you know, like um, that's going on. And so you, what you're telling me, uh, both of you, is that there's evidence for a developing mass shooter culture with a mass shooter community that is like not only embracing these, you know, domestic terrorists, but also uh, trying to figure out a rubric by which they can aspire to and like, you know, what the criteria would be for like, you know, uh, various points like that's well, so really like, dark. Yeah. Like this, this manifesto from the El Paso shooter is not like an, in any way new, like the martyrdom, the, you know, giving advice to future killers, all of this stuff has, you know, happened before, but now it's happening with a frequency and a, at a regularity that... There, there were two this weekend and one last weekend that were direct. There were two yesterday. Yes, two and yesterday. one a week to week ago today. Like that's. I'm going to say that's too many. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Yeah. And like you had, um, you know, the Gilroy shooting only had three deaths, but then you had twenty. Only three. In, right. Yeah, only. Right. I know. Which yeah. is yeah. One of them was like a six-year-old boy. It's like really, man. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Can you imagine losing a six-year-old? Yeah. Man. And there's also just something that's like beyond the the deaths that is like I think just deeply traumatic for us to go through as a as a culture as a people. The idea that you know this is like for something like this to happen in you know Dayton, Ohio, on like a downtown, like it could happen. If that's the case, it can happen anywhere. It can happen here. It can happen. Every single American is now constantly think maybe not constantly, but in the back of their mind thinking. Anywhere I go, I could potentially be gunned down in less than a minute. That's how long it took the Dayton shooter to kill nine people this and is, injure. This is ISIS A tactics. minute. You know, yeah. th- this well, is, yeah. you know, you, white jihad. Yeah. You know, like they, they view the, the, the threat on the quote unquote like white nation. And they, you know, are, are going to 
take up a spiritual battle involving the deaths of innocents. Yeah. And it's and so another thing that's disturbing is that um, the the shooter in Gilroy, the FBI says that he has no definite ideology. They're not they're they're saying that news reports that ascribe to him a a white supremacist political ideology are inaccurate. But then there have also been reports that an anonymous federal law enforcement source uh, revealed to I don't maybe the AP I can't remember. Um, who said that they did, in fact, find reading material on white supremacy in his domicile. And we know this is that... This the Dayton shooter? This is the Gilroy, Gilroy. shooter, Gilroy, California. And we also know that the day of or the day before, he posted a, on Instagram telling people to read um, Might is Right, which is a late 19th century white supremacist text that is like well known to be often cited by white supremacists. It's like a kind of cultural Darwinism text about how whites should rule the world and women are the property of their husbands. And it's also weirdly like anti-Christian and says that Jesus is evil and all this. But anyway, it is like, a. It, there's no doubt that it's a white supremacist text. And the fact that the shooter posts it the day of, or the day, I think it was the day of yeah. the attack, that that doesn't that that's not enough for us to understand that he has a white supremacist ideology or or even when they do acknowledge that there is like some sort of connection it is this weird cop speak like the el paso uh shooter uh the um uh the uh, the police the the only thing the police were able to say was that the suspect has a nexus to potential hate crime like Which, what the, what that's not nexus. even a real yeah a nexus like that's not even a real sentence these guys are just big league of legends fans yeah right yeah yeah it's just that it doesn't make any fucking sense like no he like he posted a overt white supremacist manifesto on the internet where the first sentence is that like i largely agree with the christchurch shooter well this is like, the el paso much, yeah that's, this is that's the el paso, paso. text right i don't think a, anybody can realistically deny that one right no but even well except for the cops who say it's a nexus to a hate crime like how, how can you say anything oh they were talking about yeah that's el paso oh, oh jesus yeah is a nexus to a hate crime like your first sentence that you posted on the internet is i agree largely with the christchurch shooter like that no that's not a nexus that is like it's declaring your allegiance like come on so, but they can't even say that, and it's because, like you know, so many white supremacists are in police departments, or maybe a better way to say right. that is police departments are, are white, white supremacist, supremacist institutions, yeah. and very much welcome individuals who have or are beginning to have like that sort of ideology. And there's a really um, creepy, in my mind, uh, crossover because you know I've been an environmental activist for most of my adult life between like the uh, these shooters and um, both in Christchurch and now in El Paso in their manifestos, basically um, centering a lot of their uh, psychopathy, or if you were to describe the murder of a bunch of innocent people as psychopathy, being driven by an anxiety over our ecology. And that yeah. corporate uh, structures and um, the capitalist uh, system and our economy in general are rendering the living earth increasingly in, uh, uninhabitable. And, and those facts, I think, are uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about, but really key to understanding the source of this violent anger. Like, he doesn't just talk about 
immigrants. He talks about automation. He talks about environmental degradation. He talks about, you know, corporate ownership of our entire political system. And yes, like, do I think that any of those, I think that probably the, well, I know that the major drive behind his rage is, you know, anger at, at immigrants and people of color. Mm-hmm. But you can't disentangle that from all of these other anxieties that are also fueling this, you know, like the, I think the hatred of immigrants is not solely racism. There are many other anxieties that are tied up in it. Well, like at the National uh, Conservative Conservatism Conference, Tucker Carlson gave like a keynote speech titled, uh, was it like Corporations Hate Your Family or something like that? Right. Where he was uh, railing against uh, Oreo having like a pronoun pack, which did exist as like a very like a pride month, like local corporate thing. gimmick <laughs> corporate gimmick right and uh but he was saying that it's like a national like every oreo has like different like encourages children to pick their pronouns or something which would be fine but you know it's not uh this not, is, did not happen this is something that like deeply 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 affects the psyches of a lot of right-wing blowhards yeah like I, absolutely I, i'm following on twitter various people and occasionally they'll retweet something from like um uh crowder or Shapiro, or whatever. And these guys are, like, really, really worried about transgender people and their effect on children. And his whole thing is, like, now they're, you know, saying that you you just have to, like, raise non-gendered children. This is going to disturb and destroy the psyche of, like, the next generation, and, like, blah, blah, blah. And, like, they're freaking out. They're yeah. freaking out yeah. about basically somebody being like, hey, this is who I am, and you being like, okay. But I think one, like one really horrifying thing is just this like national realignment of all these different political stripes that uh, you, that you can now have a, like a far right eco extremist or like a like some like an eco fascist essentially. It, it shits all over horseshoe theory, yeah, which absolutely. if nothing else, it's good for that. Good yeah, for sure. unpacking that myth <laughs> that you know there are two exactly you know opposing ends in politics like that is just and i think it's it's a natural all like this right-wing hatred of corporations is a natural result of just a a, a ever increasing public hatred of corporate of corporations Mm. yeah and corporate control so naturally it's going to bleed even into the fringes even into you know like alt-right mass shooters because it, Who it, is left that likes corporations, you yeah. know? And, and I know there's a lot of people that are arguing in good faith that, like, we shouldn't be focusing and stigmatizing uh, mental health every time a self-avowed, like, white supremacist takes domestic terrorist action in the United States and chalk it up to, you know, uh, mental health or further stigmatize it. But at the same time, to try and, you know, talk about this um, phenomena in a complete absence of recognizing that a society and a a nation made up of people that were generally a lot more mentally healthy would have a lot less senseless acts of mass violence. Um, I just don't understand how you could make it the argument that mental health isn't a big um, factor in all of this. The way I always look at it is like who gets to be mentally unwell in this country, right? And like what happens when you are? And for, like, young white boys that hate brown people or, like, you know, just espouse things that, like, these mass shooters are, are espousing in their manifestos, like, you get, to, you get to actually live after shooting 20 people. He was taken alive, you know? And whereas if you are, say, like, um, you know, a, a schizophrenic man who 
realizes that he's off his meds and calls the cops to have to be restrained. He needs someone to restrain him. They killed that guy. Yeah, the David's referring to um, this man Anthony Timpa, who in 2016 was essentially uh, an officer leaned on him in the back with his knee on his back for a full 13 minutes with his entire body weight. And the man ended up dying right there, surrounded by cops laughing at him and making fun of him. Um, And just like viciously, like at one point, uh, as he's going unconscious, he starts like gurgling. You can hear that like he can't breathe. It's a death rattle. It's it's almost, it sounds similar to a death rattle where like you can tell that he can't breathe. And... Um, the cops are making jokes about how he needs like, wake up, Tony, it's time to go to school. No, mommy, I don't want to go to school yet. They're, and they're all cackling. Meanwhile, this man is dying underneath them. And this was somebody suffering from schizophrenia who had gone off their meds. He had taken what he said was a very small amount of cocaine. He told the 911 operators that he was not armed. Um, he ran into the street and a private security guard uh Ta- like ta- like took him down and handcuffed him. And so when the cops arrived, he was already handcuffed. The first thing he said in the video was, you're going to kill me. And then that's when he kind of starts to roll away from the cops. The cop story is that he was about to roll into traffic. And so they had to restrain him for that. They put him in what's called the something prone position, which is a really controversial uh, position for cops to hold to hold people in he's handcuffed behind his back his uh ankles are strapped together with a zip tie and he's got his knee on the man's back and is putting all of his body weight on him all because he tried to roll away from police during what is a likely schizophrenic episode i mean cocaine use can absolutely trigger a really like terrifying episode of schizophrenia and he called the cops on himself and then the cops told the family that oh well he had a heart attack while in custody and this was told to his family for years after the incident was all of these little they they you know they were really just like sanitizing the entire event and lying to this family and the public and newspapers and yeah, so it's it's clear that like people with mental illness are more likely to be the victims of, exactly, of violence yeah. than the perpetrators of it, which I think just goes more to the point that uh, you know who gets to be unwell in this country is t- completely a function of who you want your victims to be, you know, or at least like the the uh, who who you want your collateral damage to be essentially, and like who uh, is taking care of you and who you are. That's, you know, like that, that is what decides where, how violence is, is allocated, you know? But, you know, mental illness is just, is broadly, very broadly defined as, um, states of mind that interfere with your ability to lead a, a, a healthy life, you know, things that interfere, you know, depression is often diagnosed in terms of how much it interferes with your day-to-day living. And I do think that it's important to recognize that anybody who straps up, with, you know, an AR-15 and puts on a bunch of body armor and goes into a crowd and shoots a lot of people is not mentally healthy. That is most certainly a mindset that interferes with your ability to, you know, have a, a, a normal, healthy day-to-day life. Right. So it it's it's incredibly complicated because you don't want that label to absolve someone of any wrongdoing, but you also just have to ask yourself, like, how can you not treat this as a mental health crisis? Even if, at the very least, because it's a mental health crisis for all of us as a culture to constantly be exposed to these events, but also, I just, I don't think you can make the argument that somebody who commits this type of, of act of violence is a, is not a mental 
mentally ill person. And on the flip side of that, you know, if you live in a white supremacist country, then like living comfortably day to day allows you to be a white supremacist person and have that not coded as mental illness, right? Yeah, absolutely. You're like, there are lots of really asocial behaviors that are not, that don't register as mental illness because we live in a society that condones them. Yeah, we elected a president that condones them. Absolutely, right. and that too. Yeah. And and I think that you know, like Beto, like for all my criticisms of Beto, you know, he's at least uh, making the very direct uh, uh, connection between the overt uh, white supremacist rhetoric and the upsurgence of white nationalist terrorism in our nation. And like, it's truly frightening. Like to the fact that this is becoming a regular thing. It's like I, I was talking earlier about um, raising the temperature in the context of um, societies before they go into some type of serious social disarray and potentially like civil war, like, you know, major uh, armed conflict. um, What tends to happen is that there's a uh, uptick in the regularity and the extremity of like random acts of violence. And that this gets the population like more and more, uh, normalized to the experience of living in and around this mm-hmm. and that it becomes just another type of political polling, like whether or but, not there was a, you know, far right, you know, uh, attack on this various p- thing, it's going to be in response to this other thing. Yeah. There's a narrative or like that already exists and only seems to become more popular that these men are being radicalized on the internet and on 4chan and 8chan and Reddit. But it's not just happening. It, it is by no means confined to small corners of the internet or even large corners of the internet or even common meeting places on the internet. It's happening in, it's happening in the white house. It's happening on national news every night in a way that is seemingly like legitimate and normal. It's happening in the form of putting children in cages in the middle of the yeah. desert and, you know, allowing several of them to die and continuing the practice. You know, it's, I don't know. It feels pretty hot. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like the temperature is rising like in the United States. But I have to, at the same time, tend to calm myself down by thinking about how much the temperature has cycled in the past, um, you know, several uh, decades. Yeah, there's this concept of stochastic terrorism, which is uh, when the demonization of a population of people incites violent acts in ways that are inevitable but unpredictable. So in other words, it's, you know, terrorism that's based on the the stoking of fear and it is bound to at some point result in one or many violent acts, but you cannot predict when and where they will happen. Yeah, it sounds like climate change. It's like, you know, the, 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 the situation is going to have a whole bunch of extreme weather disasters, but you can't predict exactly where and when they're going to happen. Well, it's like so many forces in, in the modern complex world that we live in, which is that there are all of these hugely influential forces that are understood very poorly with consequences that we cannot predict. And that's the air conditioner. <laughs> you can't predict it. You can't predict it. Okay, Uh, air conditioner off. Part of the stochastic nature of the violence is that is the political valence of the gun, like the technology itself has a has a politics to it that at any moment, someone that holds a gun has new options available to them for action. Right. And it's like you act differently when you have a gun available to you. And so like when you feel really angry and violent, you can exercise that violence like what like 
like in Dayton, where it's like a minute you kill nine and ten people. Right? Yeah, you know that. Yeah, this is where the like kind of pro gun argument says, well, if it wasn't guns, it would just be knives, and if it wasn't knives, it would just be vans. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? And I, I think that there is a lot of truth to that, which is to say that like gun uh, restriction alone isn't going to stop. Right, the... but you can't kill twenty people in a minute with a van. I think you you might be able to like, it, like it's who, not as easy. <laughs> it's I I would say yeah, Tw- like I, killing twenty people, killing one person with a car is not even that easy. Like you have you have to be hit really fast and really hard to be killed by a car. Yeah, but I, mean, I, th- I think it was like Mal Harris on Twitter said something. It was like the gun violence when you, people um, evoke the idea of uh, gun control. What they're really saying is I want the the people that I like to have the guns. Right, like you just you want the right people to have the guns sure. when you say gun Absolutely. control. And what uh, what we really need to reckon with is the fact that there's a, a shit ton of guns out in the world. People make a lot of weird decisions, make a lot of bad decisions with guns in their hands, and uh, that's and and we and we have to find a new way of bringing down, you know, like really kind of, kind of like being the the people that don't use them as often, even though they're there. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Do you guys own guns? No. no. Oh, I, I own guns. I, but I don't have, like, I'm not opposed to people owning guns. Yeah, me, neither like am I. political philosophy. I just don't I want one or feel like I need one. Yeah, see, for me, it was one of those things that, like, you know, there was a time in my life when I had a little bit of uh, surplus uh, money, and I was like, all right, what should I, you know, uh, have in the case of, like, disaster? So I have, like, some, you know, dried food, and I've got, you know, all this other stuff, and, like, I could own a rifle, and so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll own a rifle. And then I went shooting with my friends a bunch, and I really liked shooting guns and ha- had a good time. It was a fun, you know, safe, like, uh, you know, very exciting kind of thing. Uh, and it demystified it, and it also made me realize that the gun that I had was super impractical. And so I ended up getting a smaller caliber rifle that I could go and uh, do target shooting more with, um, and it was a lot cheaper. Um, and so I own two rifles right now, but they're locked up, like, all the time. I've, I go shooting, like, once a year. And so I'm not like, uh, you know, your typical, I guess, like gun enthusiast, but I you don't have one under your pillow no, that you no. are just rearing to use on a home invader. No, no. But I, I think that, um, it, you know, in a country awash with small arms, it, I don't know, it just made an intuitive sense to like have one and like be really responsible with it and like know how to take care of it. Um, but like if we were as a society to say like, Hey, let's figure out and we all want to just do away with all these firearms. And there was like a mass movement that people were like, yeah, let's just do away with all these firearms. I would probably not be incredibly uh, antagonistic to that movement. The big thing that I see, though, is that like the far right is like incredibly armed, like yeah. incredibly armed. And these are people who, you know, for my political beliefs, want to do me physical harm. And that frightens me. And I guess, like, that leads to having, like, you know, uh, more guns than we ought to. Yeah, and then there's, like, this fact that there's a, a class element that is... I'm not the first to make this but it, this point, but it, it is one that I don't think is said enough, that guns are expensive, which means two things. One, the people that hoard them have a lot of money. And it is sort of like a class dimension to the fact that people with in their yeah, Stephen own paddock had what like 17 right. or whatever like yeah you know like the people that are really big gun enthusiasts will you know you let them use the term that they call themselves right but uh like that they have to have a lot of disposable income but the second thing is that people who do have guns that aren't 
that don't have a lot of disposable income, they quite often will buy this gun, not because of the culture, but because uh, it is a good, a sound investment. Like guns don't lose a lot of value if you keep them well-maintained. And so they are a kind of uh, investment vehicle of sorts that people like buy guns and sometimes musical instruments to like put their money somewhere. If you had bought um, the semi-automatic... Sorry, that's just funny. Like a gun and a saxophone is just funny. But yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. There was a period of time where there was some classification of like submachine gun, like, um, you know, uh, basically like fires like almost a pistol round, but at high uh, velocity. There was one period in American history where you could have bought them. There was like some window. And if you had invested like $10,000 into that, it would now be worth like four hundred thousand dollars or yeah. something like that like there so people do use gun law uh uh you know uh strategy as a way of investing money yeah guns are investment vehicles i look forward like, to us uh moving past this money-based economy to a gun-based economy <laughs> where we just trade guns for goods and services they're gonna uh, make a great currency yeah uh, uh, like uh, uh potatoes are five glocks now uh this is getting out of control yeah it, yeah it, what's it, that saying uh we we ran out of only when we ran out of food did we realize we could not eat our guns <laughs> speak yeah. for yourself well, the, you know th- that type of like uh lorax mentality was actually mentioned it in was. the el paso um you know uh, manifesto and that's dark that's it really dark very dark so, to see just the lorax in the middle of one of those paragraphs yeah so this is all evidence i think toward the fact that we're dealing with a cultural you know issue of having really um uh, a lot of trouble around our relationship to violence and that we live in a society that has way more of these mass acts of violence than any other you not ha- just that we have more it's like the only per- place in the world that's not an active war zone where this happens like other than the rare you know one off terrorist attack that happens in Europe we've had three mass shootings in a week like yeah. this is not it's not even just more it's an entire different degree of magnitude than anything that's happening anywhere else in the world yeah and you look at the two things that are different in the United States and everywhere else it's that we have a shit ton of guns and private health insurance <laughs> Yes. You know, that's it. I I think those two things. The uh, anti corporate message. I want to point out a a third thing that we we are unique in. And we have bases in military bases in almost every country on the planet. That we have a global, unending war on the concept of terror, even though we largely disregard both the mechanisms and the ideologies that lead to domestic terror in terms of by the numbers. Like we have a white supremacist far-right na- uh, nationalist violence being done both on the global uh, stage and in America that is, you know, um, I think a symptom of a really uh, toxic relationship that our nation has with um, the concept of sanctioned violence. Like, we cheer people who go to foreign nations and, like, bomb cities. There are more um, uh, children being bombed in foreign countries to the general malaise and or passive acceptance of America than there are people being shot in America by domestic terror. But domestic terror is the the greatest actual terroristic threat statistically for Americans. Yeah, like one of the most disturbing, like, instances of martial culture is really the 2016 Democratic Convention, right? Where you just see all these people coming up on stage that are like veterans or, or active military and they're just being like saluted and applauded and 
you know, it's like, and, and, you know, of course, like terrible things happen to people who are usually uh, conscripted into our military because they need money for college or something. And it's like, you know, that, that, that sucks. But in general, you know, like you, there's the valorization of these uh, soldiers is really, really disturbing. I don't think can be disconnected from what we're talking about. And I think speaking directly of soldiers, we, we talked earlier about how it's, I, th- I think, and a lot of people think that it is reasonable to view these mass shootings in the, in the lens of mental health and whether or not that person can be mentally healthy. We also have plenty of people who join both the, you know, armed forces and law enforcement because they really like the idea of hurting and killing other people. And to me, that person who joins the military and law enforcement with the same desire to harm people and often now the power and the tools to do so is also like that mentally unhealthy. And all of those uh, predilections for violence have to be understood as like, yeah, I guess a dark psychic force that yeah, it the, must be defeated. There was an ex-machine um, uh, gunner uh, in, I think, Iraq that came and shot up a, a bar in California like less than a year ago. Um, and it was like directly relating. And it was once again, like this sort of like white boy, lone wolf, nihilistic, black pill, like everything's fucked. Like, you know, uh, I'm just going to murder a bunch of people and, uh, type of uh, situation. Like Stephen Paddock, they never found, quote unquote, a motive. What is with that? Like the idea that, you know, if he were Muslim or he was, you know, repping any other type of identity than just a rich white guy, they would have immediately been like, oh, yeah, the motive is like, you know, tied to like who he is and like the culture he comes from. Well, maybe if the culture you come from is deeply psychotic and has the idea of holding in the same breath the idea of upholding human rights in the world and being the greatest purveyor of organized violence in the world, that that's going to cause a cognitive dissonance that's going to, on the fringes of that bell curve, result in acts of mass violence with really convoluted uh, political and mixed uh, motivations. And that the psychology of somebody who's tying white nationalism in with like anti-corporate pro eco uh, sphere uh, type of thing is I think a direct result of us dealing with the moment that we're in right now in the culture that we're in right now that, that, you know, people are freaking out and we have to figure out like a way to, I don't know, lower the temperature somehow. Paddock being the, the uh, Las Vegas shooter. Yeah. Right? yeah. He shot like 500 yeah. people. Yeah. And, and, and that huge scale of people uh, of, of violence is a, uh, Makes it so that what were we saying? Like the, there, there was someone at the Las Vegas. Uh... The, there was someone at the Gilroy shooting who was also at the Las Vegas shooting. Yeah, and that's not the first time that that's happened. No, right? It's not. Like people at the Las Vegas shooting have been in other shootings just because there's so many people and so many shootings. I saw just today somebody who said that they were at the they lived in El Paso and that they had two friends who died in the night in the Pulse nightclub shooting. Yeah. So you now you have it's not even just like the trauma of it being a thing that has happened in the country somewhere else and now you know it could happen to you too. It's we now have like many individuals in this country who have personal who have firsthand experience of these events in more than one way and that is like really uh horrifying yeah, that, yeah that's, it really that's is. just, it's just like a, it's a new class of people that are the victims of like multiple stochastically unexpected mass shootings it's like it's really quite remarkable okay so 
actually, uh, during one of these breaks, I had looked up the um, 2016 uh, Nice-France uh, truck attack, and apparently 86 people were murdered and 458 others injured in Nice-France, and that was with a, uh, a van. So the argument that even if we take away all guns, that these acts of uh, large-scale mass murder terror are likely to continue, like given the social and you know uh, political and psychological conditions that we're we're in, I think is somewhat valid because I think that if people want to really do harm to others, they're going to find a way. It just so happens right now, getting a gun that has a big magazine and being able to just shoot up a ton of people is like the most straight beeline way to become a mass terrorist, and that. If we were to reduce the amount of guns that we have or ban uh, all out categories, that it would re result, I think, in some level of violence reduction. But like this is bigger than uh, just, you know, a classification of, of firearm. Yeah, like, absolutely. No, like, I agree with you. And I, I don't mean to. Um, I do think that it's harder to kill huge amounts of people very, very quickly without these types of high capacity guns. But I absolutely agree with you that the you can you can commit mass acts of violence, you know, with really any kind of deadly weapon. I look at yeah. how many people cops kill with just a handgun and, right. and, yeah. and some mace. And if people yeah. want to, they can build bombs. I mean, like the um, Oklahoma City bombing, like hundreds and hundreds oh, yeah. of people. Uh, assault weapons are used, uh, you know, that's a political term. It basically is a descriptive term of different physical features on a firearm. So if it has a four-hand uh, grip, if it has a uh, removable magazine, if it has an adjustable stock, if it has a uh, muzzle device, if it has, you know, uh, various features, it is classified as an assault weapon. So a lot of, like, gun folks have, take umbrage with the, the, the term assault weapon and assault rifle. Do mm -hmm. you know... Do you know why that is? Yeah, or? because assault rifle is like an actual thing. It's a designed rifle for assaulting, right? Which is to say, being able to shoot from mid-range and also being able to move in and out of like a physical building. Like, so you have a pistol grip so that you can like open a door and so that you can handle the gun with like one arm. It's short. It's typically a carbine. It is a semi-automatic uh, device, uh, firearm that is uh, magazine fed so that you can have multiple magazines and be able to swap them out in a combat scenario. A lot of the features of, uh, that are quote-unquote assault weapon, like evil features, are features that largely are just innovations in firearm manufacturing and that like the term assault weapon is a political term to classify an arbitrarily designated number of these arbitrarily designated evil features, um, a lot of which can actually increase usable user um, uh, safety in making sure that the gun is like not going to go off accidentally. For example, if you were to like be trying to deal with a quote-unquote home invasion with a hunting rifle, the way you actually have to hold the gun is more difficult to open a door with than if you had a pistol grip. So like, the, and if you're going to have like a muzzle flash uh, suppressor, then if you were to try and shoot at, you know, some, uh, something at night that potentially is, you know, a physical risk to you that the light can throw off your night vision and like uh, mess you up. So like all these various uh, features, we can cut out a lot of this. No, but, it's really interesting. Yeah. It's really um, interesting. So basically uh, the, the, these features uh, constitute a quote unquote assault weapon. And so, you know, New York has, uh, you know, Andrew Cuomo to touts it as the toughest 
largest assault weapon ban in America. Is that the New York Safe Act? Yep, that's the Safe Act. And so if you see like uh, these trucks, you know, uh, with like fuck Cuomo, like spelled out with like, uh, uh, you know, military style uh, weapons, you know, like AKs and uh, AR-15s and stuff like with the K and stuff. Um you that's anti-safe act and what safe act did was it uh banned uh uh the assault weapon as defined by i think more than two features so i have a gun that is essentially an ak-47 it has the same firing uh control group it has the same springs and pistons and caliber and rifle and general everything that's functional to actually making a gun a gun as the ak-47 but it doesn't have a pistol grip it has hunting stock and because I've chosen the specific feature of just the removable magazine, I ha- have a gun that's not classified as a quote-unquote assault weapon. And it's just mostly ergonomic featureless in the sense that it now is, is, is a good, non-evil gun. Well, that does make sense to me in the sense that it would be harder to kill larger numbers of people with a gun that's not as ergonomic ergonomic yeah like the fact it, that it's something hard to is do really, everything with it it seems like the fact that something is really easy to wield yeah. is part of what would be the appeal for using it in a mass shooting because a you may not be a guns expert um and b you just if it's easier to wield you have more capacity it's, to kill i would think yeah like, and, and when you're going hunting or whatever that's what you're trying to do you're trying to increase your capacity to kill right or if you're trying to defend your home or any of the the reasons people in america think are good reasons for having a gun right and so like the the point is that it's one of the most popular guns in the world the ar-15 or sorry in america um and it's going to it, it there's always a call to ban it well that's a politically sensitive issue because it's the most popular gun in America. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it makes up a statistical noise of the uh, uh, violence of guns, most gun mur- murder and homicide and suicide is done with pistols, that, that statistical noise is incredibly loud. It, 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 it touches us all emotionally, like, you know, in the news and in the mass uh, mourning of these like mass terror events. And so I understand why people want to get rid of it, but I just also want to point out that like doing so is going to be incredibly difficult and that it's, you know, not going to actually statistically reduce the amount of gun death in America by much. There's an Im- really interesting, I think implicit uh, disagreement with the politics of gun control within gun control legislation that you guys just described where if the things that politicians have identified as important to controlling for gun control, namely like useful ergonomic features, right? Then that is also the features that make people who don't know how to use guns, but have a deep desire to kill people like that. That's a really useful thing for them. So it's actually, so that seems like an implicit acknowledgement that the problem is not, there are too many guns. It's that there are too many guns for people who don't usually use guns and that there is, a deep demand for the ability to kill if you want to get super abstract about it. And the problem is that we need to control the few guns that make it really easy to kill a bunch of people with no prior knowledge of how to use guns. And and you'll see the NRA use ADA compliance as, or like, you know, trying to appeal to people. Like they'll say that's an ableist argument. You know, they say like, why should a uh, person who, you know, has poor motor control, um, why should they be any less able to defend their life with potentially lethal violence than someone with good, uh, you know, motor control? And I'd say, well, basically for the same reason why you wouldn't want somebody with poor motor control behind the, a car in a regular traffic in- incident. You know, it's like, 
for whom does it turn into like absolute mental decay that, yeah. you know, there's going to be some tail end of the bell curve. You know, we have this uh, society that's slowly psychologically coming to terms with the material conditions of its ecosystem and its relation to that. And with the fact that we're in a time that nation states seem like obsolete concepts where we're using the internet and this global civilization to, you know, move around wealth and capital. And, you know, we're increasingly mobile ourselves and less like, you know, setting down roots in, in, into, you know, whatever, you know, communities, as we talked about last week, um, that, that we, there's going to be a lot of pressures, psycho, psychology, econ, psychologic uh, pressures, economic pressures that are going to be, uh, you know, really stressing our system and the individual people in it. And, you know, like until we come to some type of real uh, consensus around what we're going to do to move forward, I don't know. This could just be one of the ways that that psychological pressure is manifested. It, well, it's it, trying to figure out how to move forward is, is, you know, there's this concept in like social sociology and social sciences of overdetermination where there are so many causal factors that, that um, produce a phenomenon that trying to understand even its most significant causes becomes near impossible Um not to mention coming up with realistic solutions. I mean, if you don't know the root causes of something, you cannot develop effective solutions. And I think that's another, like, it's, again, talking about whether or not these people are being, where are they being more radicalized? 8chan or, you know, CNN? Like, or, it's, yeah, you, or, you know, you it's, know the, the White House uh, press conference or... Well, we don't have press conferences oh, anymore, yeah, uh, unfortunately. But, but you do need to recognize, yeah. like, the connection between those two things. That we that they're usually presented, 8chan and CNN, as, like, polar opposites or, like, in tension with one another. When really, like, you know, they, they kind of follow lockstep. Or at least 8chan is sometimes even a more honest depiction of what that's cable news is largely saying which is the argument of whitney phillips and why we can't have nice things a really excellent book that everyone should pick up a a a, a scholar of um uh folklore that studies internet new media folklore especially but yeah yeah well her her department is like folklore studies Mm -hmm. and she's studying the internet it's super a useful book to that's still very she happens she talks about how the success of trolling and here we're talking about trolling as it was known like in the aughts um it it works hand in hand with mass media like one can like trolling cannot really exist without without um already established mass media and dominant narratives this reminds me of another social theorist uh charles perrow who has this uh argument called normal accidents where uh so much of uh modern a society you actually expect something to go wrong and that is normal and that you and that usually institutions highly technical ones uh oftentimes uh expect something to go wrong and so they they make decisions based on uh, a a margin of error basically right so a train company like csx that carries uh crude oil up and up and down the continent like they know that, uh, you know, nine times, you know, some at some percentage, uh, a train will derail and some massive accident with lots of deaths will occur. Yeah, Lake Crude right. makes a bomb train. Yeah, yeah, a bomb train. Yeah, essentially a bomb train. Yeah, and uh, uh, and they know this and they make decisions based on it, knowing that like they are willing to accept a certain degree of of error here, and error being you know deaths and mass climate catastrophe, and. Uh, 
the and I think we're we're really heading toward a point where mass shootings are this sort of normal accident. You know, like they're not accidents, but you know, they we they, there's a a percentage chance that they're going to happen. And so now and I think the something really dangerous is that we will not only normalize them but start making decisions based on the 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 expectation that we'll we will have a mass shooting and what that starts looking like is like this even further martial culture which reinforces the problem that you know everyone needs to be prepared all the time and you even start seeing that with like republicans trying to arm teachers yeah i was gonna say the school culture is definitely becoming more and more carceral and more and more openly militarized yeah i think that's exactly what that is is this uh normal it's a normal accident and like we and, and it becomes naturalized it's like the yeah, weather, it gets to, it gets and to the you're going to, like, fight yeah. over it. And yeah. then you show up at your farmer's market, and there are, like, 17 cops wearing tactical gear, and they are keeping you safe. Yeah, and people are Sounds. like, oh, good, I'm so glad that they're Thank here. Thank God yeah. these, like, militarized uh, doofuses who, like, pass no significant personality uh like background test just you know just jackbooted thugs that are keeping us all safe from the possibility of mass violence now did you guys in grade school ever have like a very like reactionary like sort of blowhard kind of like teacher like the, the exact type Several, of teacher yes. that would arm themselves if they were like legally allowed to and oh, would absolutely. probably be the only people within the school that would arm themselves like, yeah my homeroom who... teacher shout out mr mills uh from high school he absolutely would have been he he said threatened to send me to the principal's office for not pledging allegiance because I never did it. So how much would you like that teacher to be packing heat? Zero, like negative five percent. Like would I suddenly like it? the 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 actual threat to the students in his class and the very real authority that he lords over them goes from I'm going to send you to the principal's office and this is going to go on your permanent record. <laughs> Which, by the way, as adults, <laughs> is totally a real thing and, like, really fucks my life up on a regular basis, like what I did in third grade. Yeah. Um, but uh, It's called so, your credit so, score. So any children that are listening to this, like, um, it's, 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 it's real. Like, yeah. you really have to the live in permanent record. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but to go from that to, no, I could blow you away. Like, I've seen teachers, unfortunately, in my, like, early high school experience, totally lose their shit on kids. And the idea that they would be legally able to just like pull out a, a concealed like firearm, you know, or and like how much does it change the dynamic in the class? If you're a teacher and you realize that at any point in your like day to day life, you may have to shoot one of your students to death. It's that is that is not a good classroom environment. I'm just going to say, I don't think that's a good classroom environment. Yeah. I don't think it's good. I think that that's one of the reasons for demilitarizing the police. It's like if you, if you have this array of, you know, violent options hanging on your hip and like, you know, glistening and on display to everybody who you interact with, it changes the dynamic. Also, we were... getting cops out of, uh, poli- out of schools, getting cops out of schools. Yeah. Well, like we were at Nighthawks the other day, sitting down, t- uh, looking out the window while we were eating lunch, and these Troy cops walk by, and they're wearing desert, like not it wasn't camo, but it was like um, the the beige, khaki. yeah, ca- like khaki tactical outfits. Outfits. They looked like they were straight out of Afghanistan, and they were like packing. They had uh, uh, they had hand, blocks. Hand, yeah, they had yeah. handguns like strapped to their thighs and uh um and and vests on and they just they, yeah they look like they they were military contractors 
in in Afghanistan or something. Even scarier than normal cops somehow. Yeah, and and they were walking like in a group of like four or five just down the street for absolutely they no reason. They were really well armed brown shirts. Like yeah. they were really yeah. I wish I could do a good Buddhist impression because I'd be basically be in a Buddhist voice, be like and these types of gear are completely unfit for American streets. This type of gear only belongs in Kabul and in uh, Fallujah. Only in brown people's countries. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And that's why I support Marianne Williamson, because she is the only candidate talking for using good psychic energy to heal our collective sociopathic mindset. Right. So, so yeah, we have built this society that like glamorizes violence in all kinds of really fucked up, weird, complicated ways. And it's manifesting in all kinds of weird, fucked up, complicated ways. And what can we use to solve these problems except orb power? Or I don't see us having another solution. Good vibes only. Or, or we could use, uh, the good old fashioned Catholic exorcism. Yeah. Yeah. Oh shit. Do we want to deep cut? Are we ready throwback. for some wildflowers? I think some... I, I am. Yeah, I could use a couple. Okay, I'm honest. Okay, so this is, you know, we're 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 gonna lighten it up a little bit, but really only a little, I guess. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what kind of world have we built where this is lightening it up a little bit? I know. Yeah, for real. Uh, so this is a, a little bit old, but I, I think part of us being a non-New York City centric podcast is like. Li- reading and talking about things that are more than 24 hours old. (laughs) Uh, So in December 2018 issue of Atlantic Magazine, which is acknowledged a terrible publication. (laughs) I don't like the Atlantic Magazine. But um, they had this one uh, pretty interesting article about um, uh, the rise of American exorcisms. That exorcisms are actually uh, quite, quite definitely, they're definitely on the rise. Some some statistics here, right? So, uh, first of all, according to recent Gallup polls and YouGov, roughly half of Americans believe in demonic possession. Half. Half. And, li- like, literally. So, we are like three the, people. Yeah. Which one or two of us believes in <laughs> demonic possession? I'm the half. I think I'm the half. I'm the one. Okay, okay cool. There we go. So, all right, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. I guess for me, I'd, I'd be like, well... What do you defend? Uh, what's your uh, definition of demonic possession? I think most people think of like demons from hell that get okay. in your body and so your we're, brain. We're not I, all I would re- imagine. So we're we're not going to chalk up the actual power relations of our society to demonic possession. No, Chris, <laughs> you can't make everything about society. Some stuff is just about demons. All right, all right. Yeah, and and so even bigger than that, same Gallup poll, fifty-five uh, percent of people. Uh, believe in the devil in 1990 today that's 70 percent or sorry in 2007 that's 70 percent i wonder what it would be now right yeah like i mean if if the trend line is still going it's like 98 percent or something now it would just like it's just like literally the devil right you think you that's know? just like a, a like a response to as we were talking about this ever increasingly complex weird scary world that we live in that we don't understand is we're yeah. just like ah, de- demons yeah i feel like w- <laughs> we've been on a trend that we're getting less and less like actually religious like going to church or synagogue or you know uh going to mosque that's actually going down but we're probably keeping a lot of the superstitions <laughs> well, yeah so, well so the argument the the uh the explanation the best explanation that the atlantic author who uh can give is that um when you have a, a dip in believing in organized religion, uh, the occult fills that space. 
And so you start believing in magic and in uh, witchy shit, I guess. And, and also a conspiracy, right? Uh, yeah, and conspiracy. And that Speaking all of, of those things uh, merge together mm-hmm, to form mm-hmm. so- something that is a meaning creation machine. Yeah. Is something The great that, unknown. Yeah, something that like, adheres all of the things that, yeah, you can't uh, explain, become explainable through the occult and magic and, and Harry Potter. You know, and maybe we can't. You you could also draw a connection between all these uh, liberal resistant hashtag resistance folks who want to turn everything into Harry Potter. I wonder if that's sort of this the vaguely secular version of I got a demon in me and I need to be exercised. Is that the new resistance uh, talking point about turning the world into Harry Potter? Did I sleep through that? Well, then you know that like every is single it just person that they like it. Well, like, every, every single bad every you know, single bad person is Voldemort. Yeah, yeah. there's like a yeah, very right, de- definitive, right, right. Um, obliquely uh, critiqued and supported on both sides. Like the baddies are like, we're the baddies. <laughs> like we just want to kill all the Muggles because, like you know, they're illegal immigrants. You know, <laughs> like, does that mean that the, what was her name, Professor Umbridge? Does that mean that they don't realize that Democrat like that 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 Hillary Clinton was literally Professor? Umbridge, the really mean. All right, no Harry, no, no Harry yeah, Potter. Never, fans I, I don't. I know, I'm yeah, not I as know big that. of a fan. You guys will know what I'm talking Umbridge. about. Though. Which one was Umbridge? She is. I think it was Umbridge. I don't. I'll have to look up her. I name take later. Umbridge. Oh, <laughs> she was just like mean and evil, and she pretended to be really nice, but like behind the scenes, she was really evil. We've just lost all our Hillary Clinton fans. <laughs> Good. Riddance. Oh no, all of both of them. <laughs> but yeah, so the the, the idea is that. When you have a, and it's sort of a paradox, right? So, like, as religion, organized religion and belief in it falls off, you start believing in demonic uh, magics and stuff like that. And the Catholic Church makes sense to me. The Catholic, well, the Catholic Church says that that is a, like, a door that opens to demonic possession. So, it, the other one being abuse. Interesting. So believing in demonic possession is a door for demonic possession. Or believing in magic and like occult stuff. Okay. And like, you know, Ouija boards, you know, is are going to open you up to yeah, pre- uh, possible pre- uh, demonic possession in their canon. Yeah. Right. So if you believe in a different canon of magic and occult, then you are opening the door up to what in their canon is... Uh, demonic possession well you can only ward off and make your soul safe from demonic possession with a healthy with with like a healthy loving relationship with christ and also a a fear and and like believing a fear of and believing in demons right like that is a very catholic notion that those who are far who are farthest from god are the most vulnerable um which makes all of us yeah but <laughs> but like and it also has a little bit to do with like what pope is uh in power at that time like john, uh, uh john paul yeah john paul pope yeah. john paul yeah the pope third, john, I think. second second yeah, uh, uh jp2 jp2 was um uh brought sort of brought uh, uh uh exorcism to the front a little bit he talked about the de- uh, the devil as a present force which makes sense you know, right in, in the 90s you had like the satanic panic where like 60 minutes always ran segments about how your babysitter might also like sacrifice your child to the devil. But uh, Pope Francis is actually also sort of on a, on a devil kick where he, um, 
He's on that, that Bob Marley devil kick. He's like, I'm going to put on an iron shirt and I'm going to chase the devil out of earth. <laughs> uh, he, uh, in one of his uh, apostolic exhortations uh, last April, April 2018, sorry, uh, he said, um, we should not think of the devil as a myth, a representation, a symbol, a figure of speech, or an idea, but as a personal being who assails us. Like, so it's Ooh. very literal. You know, that, uh, like this, there are... Does he name names? Drumpf, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Drumpf uh, is the... Orange devil. man demon. Orange man Bezos. demon. Bezos. Musk. <laughs> uh, so n- another statistic to sort of uh, flesh this out. Uh, Father Vincent Lampert, the official exorcist of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, uh, told the Atlantic reporter that in early October that he'd received... 1,700 phone or email requests for exorcisms in 2018 alone. Holy, Holy shit. <laughs> Dude, that's like, what, three a day? That's medieval numbers. Yeah. Man. Yeah, we're, so we're going tw- back to the dark age. In 2011, the U.S. had fewer than 15 known Catholic exorcists, and today it's over 100. You said in 20... 20- in 2011. Holy shit. So yeah, we do so, have so, some more some more current numbers. Though. Yeah, so the Catholic, the Catholic Church is, is meeting the demand by training a lot more exorcists, uh, which I, 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 if, if I remember correctly, uh, they only have like three training facilities in like Chicago, Rome, and a third place that I, I don't recall might be uh, in South America. Like, like what material conditions do you think contribute to specific individuals believing that they are possessed by a demon and that they need an exorcist. Well, I mean, if your wife isn't having sex with you, that's right. an obvious one. Yeah, so your <laughs> wife won't fuck you. She's got a demon. So Mike Mariani, the author of the piece that we're talking about, uh, uh, opens and closes his story with this woman who um, actually has what she claims to be a demonic possession. And she has like three instances where she feels... Like something is around her that sound a lot like uh, sleep paralysis, except there are a couple moments where uh, there, the second instance, she says that she felt something like touch her shoulder, which is like it, it's like the only thing that isn't part of a pretty textbook version of sleep paralysis. Have you had sleep paralysis, either of you? No, I've had uh no, no, I've I've had something where like like sort of in between the waking and sleeping moment that was more like a uh, 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 a night terror that stays in wakefulness a little bit later, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like immobilized the way that sleep paralysis is, where like you're still that... dreaming and you're kind of awake and your body can't move. Yeah. How do we know that sleep paralysis? isn't demonic possession right yeah Hot take. Is, i'm just yeah, saying just saying how yeah. do we know I, I yeah. science can't prove it but it, but to get to your <laughs> to get to your answer or your question about uh uh the material conditions you know part of it is that you know not only is like believing in the occult right what the so-called door opening to uh, uh to demonic possession the really um darkly ironic other door that opens is uh, childhood sex abuse, right? And and one of the what one one of the exorcists said that something like eighty percent of the people that he has exorcised also say that they had some form of sexual abuse as a child. Fuck. Yeah. So wasn't uh, there some tie-in with MK Ultra that you know government operation where they were like giving people LSD to like see if they could unlock like. Uh, ESP powers from people. I think there was some tie-in where they either like 
had some child abuse victims that were um, being, you know, uh, used in the study to try to elicit like supernatural capabilities from. I wonder if the t- if the timing would work that you know, like if you were a young kid in the '60s, then like when you're like 30 something, it's the '90s, and we have that first round of uh, uh, of occult satanic panic sort of stuff. So that yeah, that's that's completely possible. But generally, I, I think you know the material conditions are uh, you know the um, the normalized abuse of women and the paternal power of of, of uh, parents and especially of, of strong men in uh, families that are that remain unquestioned, and I think that works itself out in these really uh, evocative psychological spiritual moments. Do you think that exorcism works? Yeah, I, I think if you believe that it works, then it works. I, I mean, I, you know, like that's some sort of confrontation of the problem. And if you've concretized the problem as like some sort of uh, demonic possession, then <laughs> yeah, I think there is something about it that it's, yeah, I mean, that like, is, is at least therapeutic. I think like one of the um, the theories around why placebo works is that like your body's response to a lot of stuff uh, when you're anxious is, you know, uh, like binding up and like holding and like sort of resisting. And that as soon as you think that you've taken something that might have actually released it, like you just psychologically release whatever was causing that source of anxiety and conflict within you. Um, so, you know, I could see an exorcism being very therapeutic if you thought it would. It's sort of like the... Kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Right? You just like you figure out really what the problem is and what kind of, you know, mental like, patterns and maladaptive yeah. uh, emotional states you've developed to deal with that problem and then try to turn those into healthier ones, except there's a lot more shouting and a lot more Latin and a lot more uh, water. sprinkling water yeah. on people. Yeah. And I, I would... also like none of the healthy benefits of actually going through CBT, just shocking somebody into not being abnormal anymore. Yeah. Pea it... soup vomit. So totally similar, <laughs> except in all the ways that it's completely different. If you, uh, you know, as they say, if you want to uh, see a shrink, you should have your head examined. And if you want to see a priest, you should have an old priest and a young priest. And you should, you know, go through the proper rites and have the, the right sac- sacraments uh, performed uh, for exactly the same reason. You know, it's like that's what you've already prescribed to yourself that you need to go through to, like, feel good about it. Ouija day keeps the priest away. <laughs> I, I would... Uh... Kind of like to be possessed for no other reason than uh, apparently you learn a second language. What I think that would be really at uh, least a, a second, re- yeah, a really manner. marketable skill. Yeah, and one of the the hallmark they they do all these tests to dis- to see if you are like faking it or if uh, there's something else wrong with you. And if they do have someone like diagnose you with some sort of like DSM five disorder, you are automatically disqualified from getting an exorcism. Or it, ha- I think. Uh, and maybe this is just because I've watched too many like paranormal horror movies, but I, I think that one of the requirements for the Catholic Church to actually um, grant dispensation for an exorcism is that you have to have demonstrated knowledge of a language that you cannot possibly right. have had prior. You yeah. know? So, so this is Lucifer Lightbringer's protest of the destruction of the Tower of Babel. <laughs> you know, he's just like, oh, yeah, well, you're going to take this power away from people. Now you know German. <laughs> Bam. Uh there's an app for that. <sighs> yeah, maybe uh, 
maybe demonic possession is a manifestation of the angry little Duolingo owl. Um, yeah. And he's just like going around sprinkling a little, a little get... demon possession so that people get up on their French lessons. Yeah, you guys ever uh, read the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or better yet, listen to the original BBC uh, radio series? Because it was really good. Uh, I, read, I listened to the audiobook version that's read by... Oh, you got to listen to the radio Somebody. play. It's yeah, like, it's the... wicked retro, but like the BBC sound uh, studio, like created all these special effects and the voice acting is really good. And like, you can find it online. Like there was a couple of zips that went around with like dozens of hours of the entire uh, uh, radio series that predates the actual publication of many of the books. Huh? Uh, yeah. Douglas Adams was directly involved with it. Um, but anyway, they have the Babelfish, which is like this little um, uh, creature that yeah. you put in your ear and it makes you like paralingual. Like mm-hmm. you just can suddenly speak any language and hear any language. And that technology is like basically here and is only going to get more integrated into our society in the next like two or three years. Like, we are going to have things in the ear of uh, people in the UN instead of actually having, like, a... Maybe not in the UN. It'll probably be on the streets or whatever. But just like the UN has those headsets that um, uh, they have a live uh, translation going through for every single speaker. It'll definitely be in the UN because that's how automation works. Like, there are a whole bunch of people who get paid by the un to be um translators during and so yeah that's just one more job it's gonna be gone but it's gonna like unlock the world because suddenly everyone's unlock the world it's gonna be really crazy because in the same way that the internet has you know rendered our conceptions of national borders national identity is like almost obsolete because we can directly communicate about like political ideas and yeah it's made time and geography much less important in our communication yeah our world has shrunk boom like overnight and it's almost like our whole understanding of politics is like very dinosaur i really am looking forward to how language spoken language uh trans uh uh, transforms itself to be more amenable to machine oh yeah translation it will yeah it's like there will be all sorts of things that people will start to say so that it is more easily translated by have you ever been in a country where you didn't speak the language of that country at all but you were around people in that country that sort of barely spoke your language and so your entire understanding of like english became sort of talking like this with lots of hand gestures and making it smooth and slow for people who don't necessarily speak this way like i've never been to another country but i know for a fact that's how i spoke spanish my junior year of high school yeah yeah. (laughs) that's exactly what you know the beginner version of any language is and like being immersed in a culture that has uh at the you know like not necessarily culture being immersed in an environment where the people who are the best at your language are still on like you know, slightly better, but not by much. My uh, understanding of, like, Spanish from, like, four years of high school or whatever. Like, that's what it's like in Japan for people uh, who speak English. Like, the vast majority of the society, like, just speaks Japanese. But everybody learns a little bit of, like, English in school. Like, we would learn French or, or Spanish or whatever in, in our high school experience. So everyone, like, sort of knows a little bit of English. But, like, everything is only They in know, Japanese. like, food and bathroom and, yeah, like, yeah. And, 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 bus and, you know, the way that we know, like, autobus and biblioteca. biblioteca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Comida. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's definitely, like, a lot of cultural crossover because of, like, the post-World War II period and the 
industrialization and you know the corporate like uh, closeness of Japan, the U.S. and everything else. But yeah, it's it, being in that uh, situation changes your uh, vocalizations, and I imagine that you're exactly right. We're going to change our vocalizations for a easy to parse, easy to translate international language, and it'll be probably the closest we get to Esperanto. Like we're going to have like a dialect of each of our individual languages that like is very easy to translate via this like, uh, you know, AI interface. Uh, Esperanto's coming back. Do you think that speaking Esperanto can get you qualified for an exorcism? Ooh, is yeah. That... Ooh. You're the most boring demonic <laughs> demon. This, like, nerd demon. This like, Esperanto is actually the most logical hey, Frank, language you in the world. you want to fuck with this human? <laughs> Let's just have him start speaking Esperanto backwards. <laughs> so the no old one priest, will get it. The young priest is going to have to play the tapes backwards, and then he's be like, is that fucking Esperanto? <laughs> Man, the devil is getting creative these days. Uh, it, it just uh, uh, for the record, the other sign, classic signs of demonic possession... Uh, along with facility in a language that the person has never learned, include physical strength beyond his or her age or condition, access to secret knowledge, Whoa. and a venomous aversion to God and sacred objects, including crucifixes and holy water. That sounds so cool. Like, be I want to know su- what kind of secret super, knowledge. Yeah, you, right. You, you suddenly here. you become like super woke, and you're just like are like lifting heavy for the first time in your life, taking that pre-workout, you know, just getting yeah. real swole. And well, what the fuck do these old and young priests know that they can recognize secret knowledge? I want this secret knowledge. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, All just, right. We're just busting like... out the Ouija board. I'm putting myself on. You suddenly that. know exactly what's going on under the temple on little St. James Island. I'm very curious, and if I have to allow a demon into my spirit to find out the secret knowledge and learn Esperanto, then sign me up, boys. Oh, just like instantly be jacked, speaking Esperanto, and know exactly (laughs) what happened on Plum Island that gave us all Lyme disease. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, good callback. Here's hoping that we all... uh... Get the demon we want. Here's hoping that we get the demon we want and we defeat the dark psychic forces somehow simultaneously. We will figure it out. I'm I have faith in us. Yeah, so. I do too. Yeah. I really do. <laughs> you know, like I think that there's the only constant is change. Expect the unexpected and trust one another. So, uh, we're on Twitter, Ironweeds Pod. Same with Instagram, Ironweeds Pod. Yep, and uh, you can buy us a coffee and give us a hammy. Uh, Buymeacoffee.com/slash/Ironweeds. Yeah. Um, and... Give us three bucks. Uh, you can find all of our handles on our Twitter account. And also, you can reach out to us at ironweedspod at gmail.com. And uh, so, shout out to a fan uh, and, uh, you know, friend of. And dear the... friend, Andrew. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Andrew, who uh, gave us uh, his recommendation for Tick by Ween as some play out music. So, we'll be uh, playing out to that. Yeah. All right. Take care, everybody. Don't get possessed by demons. And, uh, and love one another. Yeah, go have fun. Do those tick checks. Peace. Peace. I feel a tick in my head, and he's sucking on my head. In the morning, I'll be dead. If he doesn't leave my head, why can't he go away? Why does he have to stay? Maybe he wants to play, but I can only say that I'll get you. I'll bless you. I'll bless you. I'll bless you.
now I can't.